So uh, I just want to take a moment. I've had a few discussions uh, with people recently about um, – we're fine. Don't worry about it. Um, we've had a few discussions recently with people about the current state of our nation. And um, it keeps coming up that, um, you know, there's sort of a despair in, in certain quarters when you talk about certain things that are going on, and then there's a great hopefulness in other areas. Uh, you know, you see big changes happening in certain states and Supreme Court decisions and all kinds of stuff. But then you look, you know, on a national level, and there's great oppression, and even, you know, the state level of, you know, our governor. And uh, the things that are going on with oppressing freedom to worship and a number of other situations. Uh, and, and this may sound strange, but I just I want us to have the proper mindset so that we don't get disappointed in the process. Okay? Our nation has fallen. The freedoms are gone. The Constitution is no longer the governing document. There is a great force of wickedness which has brushed aside rule of law and is now doing whatever it wants to, even though the laws are in place and saying this or that, right? You know, you look at this past election, and I know all of the theories and conspiracy theories and possible truths that are involved, but we don't have the freedom to examine that. We, you know, the information won't flow. There are blockages in the way that are keeping us from examining certain things. We are held in bondage in this nation by deceit, by lies. Okay? Don't despair. Right? The nation of Israel, you know, 12 tribes goes through that division process because of their rebellion to the Lord where 10 tribes separate into the north, two tribes in the south. The 10 northern tribes immediately launch into idolatry. Uh, the punishment of the Lord comes against them as the Assyrians begin to invade and buffet their northern border. The Lord warns them through the prophets. They ignore. That continues, right, through hundreds of years until Assyria invades from the north and takes all of the ten northern tribes away captive. And you would think that'd be the wake-up call. But the two southern tribes continue to flounder. Rather than that being... Right, an incitement to their revival, they struggle with idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. And there's good periods of time of reform, not revival, but reform, Hezekiah, a good king, and others that bring about changes. But their hearts are still corrupt. They're still sinful. And they experience the same thing, buffeting invasions and difficulties until what, right? 586 B.C., full invasion of Babylon, and they're all taken away captive. This nation's been given America over and over again the opportunity to repent. And it's refused God's hand as God has corrected and disciplined this nation. And the stiff, rebellious neck has led us to this place. It's led us to the place where now within our nation we are captive to foreign entities. All kinds of terrible influences, right? Jeremiah chapter 29, as the nation of Israel, we talked about this a few times in the past few weeks, as the nation of Israel is being carried away captive, Jeremiah tells that nation, stop 
listening to the false prophets. Your profound patriotism is not going to rescue you from the judgment of God. You need to go away into your captivity. And you need to have houses and plant gardens and raise families. Settle down in the captivity, right? Not a contentment with the slavery, but stop resisting the punishment of God is what he's saying. That's what the prophet says. Right? Do we not recognize that this nation needs to be punished? Do we not recognize the sinfulness of this nation, the unrepentant attitude? Oh, you individually, right? The elect, the remnant, whose heart is fixed upon the Lord, but our nation as a whole is living in rebellion to God. And so God has to punish this nation. People standing around, 9-11, going, is this the judgment of God? Guess what? It is. What we're experiencing right now is the judgment of God against a nation that is rebelling against him. Seventy years the nation of Israel was in captivity until they were broken of their idolatry. When they came back to Israel, never again did they fall into idolatry. They wrestled with sin, right? They struggled with materialism. Money, business, things of that nature, right? Jesus shows up, profound sin in the nation, but the idolatry is gone. This nation worships money. This nation worships materialism. And God is trying to cure this nation of that, trying to cure us of that, so that our hearts are fixed and focused on him. So as you hear things in the news and you're reading you know, different things online and such, and you're hearing about changes. Understand, we're, we're in the place of God's judgment right now. Oh, well, you know, the next election. Yeah, things may turn around. God may give us a reprieve. But if this nation does not repent, then you're going to see the pendulum swing back the opposite direction again. That's why we're in the condition we are right now. We were given an opportunity, right? And, and instead of this nation focusing on Jesus Christ, what were they looking at? Oh, look at the joblessness of our nation. Everybody's got a job. Look at the money. Look at the prosperity. The economy is at a historic level. Wait a minute. So materialism and money and prosperity is your focus? Not Jesus Christ? And because Jesus Christ is not the focus... The number one thing that's under threat right now is freedom of religion. You know, the, the, especially the governors that are focusing on this. I don't know how much you're paying attention to this, right? You know, here in this church and as we're meeting, uh, but you look around the nation and look at the occasions where, I mean, do you understand that in the same building, right, you have certain churches that are very civically minded. And so because of, for instance, the benefits that the government is handing out, they can open up their churches and help people sign up for government benefit programs. So 200, 300, 400, 500 people can show up there, right? Because they can all go to Walmart. They can all go to Home Depot. They can also go to this church over here and sign up for government benefits, but when the bell tolls and it's time for that building to house church, only 50 people are allowed in the church. 
oppression of religion. That building can have as many people as they need to in other circumstances, right? You know, mask requirements, social distancing, but no problem. Fill the place up and have people fill out forms for government benefits. But you open the doors for worship, no way, right? 50 people max, everybody's going to wear a mask. You know, people are set, literally churches we know, you guys, I don't know if you've seen this, on their website, it says register for church. What? Register for church. Meaning they can only have so many people in church. So literally, if you want to go to church this Sunday, you've got to click on the thing and register to be there. The, the freedom of religion is gone. We aren't allowed. A freedom to assemble, gone. Right? Freedom of press, gone. The oppression that we are living under, the bondage, and that's just going to increase. So don't, don't, be fearful about this. This is God's plan. Right? He's, he's got us in his hand. We are under his control. We are safe within his protection. God knew this was going to happen, and he raised up people like you and I to be in these communities. And what? As I prayed when we started, to share the kingdom of God with those people. To bring them into the hopefulness. We'll fill this place. We don't care. Bring them all in. Let them all sit here and hear the gospel. Invite your neighbors to hear the word of God. Don't live a life of fear. Numbers chapter 20. That was your sermonette before your sermon. Numbers 27 is where we're at. So if you'll turn there with me. We've already prayed. We're continuing to look at the nation of Israel. Uh, They recently just numbered the nation again. And we were talking about the comparison between the original number And now the ending number and how there was a decrease in the people where there should have been an increase and that that was mostly a result of their sin. And then you come to Numbers 27 and you deal with a particular situation where it says, Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Micker, the son of Manasseh, from the families of of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And we talked about the numbering and the divisions of the family and how, (coughs) excuse me, Joseph's family had been divided into the two lines. And here these daughters are descendants from Manasseh and they have a particular circumstance that they need to bring to the attention of the leadership of the nation of Israel. These were the names of the daughters, Mahala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirza. Again, you can just add those to the girls' names for any future children that may come into your family. No, those are very appealing to a lot of people. Um, they stood before Moses, before Eliezer, the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. But he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in company with Korah. But he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. So for clarity, okay, we probably all remember the rebellion of Korah, who was of the tribe of Levi, but he, being filled with sinful pride, tried to overthrow Moses, with the mindset 
saying to all the people of Israel, you know, Moses takes too much authority upon himself. We could be priests, we could be leaders too, and instead our job as descendants of Levi is to just help transport the tabernacle. We don't ever get to be part of the sacrifices, the offering, hearing from the Lord, speaking to the nation of Israel, and they wanted a bigger, more important role for themselves. And what they were doing was undermining the authority of Moses and Aaron. The Lord ended up killing Korah and anyone who followed him in the process. Here, these daughters are saying, our father died, but just for clarification, we're all descendants of Levi. He wasn't part of the rebellion of Korah. And when it says he died in his own sins, it isn't the implication that his sinfulness killed him. They're simply saying, our father is like every other man. He was human. He was sinful. And when he died, he died of natural causes. So our father wasn't part of trying to overthrow uh, the leadership that God had established uh, within the nation of Israel. Verse 4. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case to the Lord. Now, here's something to take note of every Christian in the room. Uh, I can't think of a man who's more wise in all of the scripture up to this point. A profound sense of understanding God's will, God's guidance, you know, everything that the Lord would have for the nation of Israel. But when he is faced with something he doesn't understand, he doesn't hesitate to admit that. He says, essentially, it's not written here, but between the lines is written, I don't know what the answer is for that. So I need to go seek the Lord. I need to inquire of the Lord in this circumstance. Uh, there's a, a human tendency uh, within all of us, but some of us it's stronger, where in our pride we tend to want to answer a situation before hearing the whole thing out. You know, we, we especially even scripturally and biblically, we start to hear something and we're like, oh, I've got the end. We start feeding the answer into the circumstance before we even hear the whole of the situation. Moses takes the time to hear what it is that they have to describe, and here he's you know, saying he's going to have to uh, you know, bring this case before the Lord. There's a great sense of wisdom there, that we should seek the Lord and not answer from our human experience. You know, okay, maybe you've spent a lot of time in church. Maybe you've lived for many years and had many life experiences. That doesn't mean those things have direct application to your current circumstance. You're going to want to take the time to pray and to hear from the Lord. Now, if you're thinking, well, you know, I don't really hear from the Lord that clearly. That's something you need to learn. Okay, uh, the scripture, James chapter one tells us that if any of us lacks wisdom, we can ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. You can have God's wisdom at your disposal. You have to inquire of him. You have to listen, and then you have to believe 
what the Lord delivers to you. Uh, James goes on to say that if you're not going to believe, you might as well not ask. It just proves that you're unstable in all your ways. Don't bother asking the Lord if you're not going to believe what he says. So just backing up to this, Moses inquires of the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers. I want you to notice this, okay? Because later we're going to get into the very end of Numbers chapter 36. And this very family, these very daughters, come up one more time. Because the nation of Israel realizes, hey, if these girls get married and they marry someone outside their family, God has divided the nation of Israel by that point up amongst the families and their plots of land have to stay within their family allotment for, according to the Lord, for eternity, right? Now, we hear of people selling the land in the Bible, but really it's a lease program. The year of Jubilee, the land returns to the original owners, right, every 50 years. So how that works is, if Steve owns a piece of land and I want to buy it, quote-unquote, from him, I go to him, and if there's 10 years from now until the year of Jubilee, he and I agree on the money it's going to be basically as a lease from now until the year of Jubilee. So then at the year of Jubilee, it returns to him. If I want to then lease it again for another 50 years, he and I can reach that agreement at that point, but the land always reverts to the family of original ownership. So within this, right, they're asking, I oh, know these girls, they don't have a direct line of inheritance because their father and all of the men in their family have passed away. God wants to make provision for them and says, yes, they inherit land. But what if they marry outside the tribe that they're from? Then the land would move to somebody else, would move to another family. So in chapter 36, the leadership inquires of the Lord, and the Lord says, no, they have to marry within their own tribe. So they have to keep their marriage. Whoever they're going to marry, it has to be from their family lineage. It has to be part of their family line. And in fact, the Lord just said that right here. They just weren't paying attention. He says it you know, in a very broad sense, and they have to get more specific to the situation they're right they can inherit among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass <clears throat> to them the lord is saying right there it happens within their family line so very often when we inquire of the lord we'll hear something and we get a sense of what he's telling us to but later we need a greater clarification again the biblical example that inquiring of the Lord will give you a greater and greater insight and a greater and greater clarity over time. So uh, the cause of the inheritance of their father to pass to them, you shall speak, verse 8, to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughters. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers... Then you shall give his inheritance 
to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you should give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. I know that for some of you, as you heard that, you probably remembered the book of Ruth. So as Naomi, who was an Israelitess, she travels into Moab during a great famine. While in Moab, her husband and sons die. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who one of her sons was Ruth's husband, passed away. Ruth returns with Naomi back into Israel, and we all love the romantic story of how Boaz ends up marrying Ruth in the process. Therein, we get this account again of the kinsman redeemer, someone within the family that's of the lineage that can inherit the land. There's also within that this discussion because Ruth's children, Naomi, has her husband's land of possession, but she ends up adopting Ruth's children so that this family lineage goes through everyone in the process. This rule of law ends up being a thing, and you're thinking, like, what, what do I care about Israeli real estate, man? Like, you know, do I really need... Well, keep in mind, you guys, they're not in the land yet. Has the Lord promised you things you're still waiting for? Have you heard from the Lord, this is what I want you to do with your life? And things don't seem to be opening up yet? Are you still trusting the Lord for it? These girls are willing, and keep in mind, this is a court case. They're willing to bring a court case before the entire leadership of their nation based upon the promises of the Lord that they haven't received yet. I like that hopefulness. I like that faithfulness right here. We very often read through these things and lose track of the mindset that, hey, this is all based upon godly promises that these guys don't even have in their hands yet. Uh, that That's something that is well worthy of note, right? The just will live by faith. You know, Not the things you can see, not the things you can handle, not the things you have in your hand. You need to function and walk based upon your relationship with the Lord and what it is that he's saying to you and teaching you, particularly from his word and through his Holy Spirit. Verse 12 of Numbers chapter 27. Now the Lord said to Moses, <coughs> Go up into Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. <coughs> now, the way the Lord says that sounds very immediate. And for a guy that's as old as Moses is, the fact that it's going to happen in a matter of months does mean that it's eminent. But it doesn't happen instantly. The Lord is telling him, I want you to have a view of what lies ahead of you. Okay? Again, that's very gracious of the Lord. That even when there's the most 
catastrophic things ahead of you, when he forewarned you of it, when it arrives, it's a lot easier to deal with. Some of you know exactly what I mean. Others of you haven't experienced it at that depth yet. Uh, but when life sort of blows apart around you, if you weren't expecting it to any degree, you very much feel like God has lost control. That everything you were trusting in previously has somehow lost its foundation and now you're just sort of twisting in the wind. If God tells you, hey, the train wreck is directly in front of you, then when the train wreck occurs, it's not as startling in the process. Uh, this is very gracious of the Lord in Moses' life and in our lives. Uh, there's something about that when you're reading through the book of Corinthians and you read that anyone who is a prophet in the New Testament that speaks to the body of Christ is going to cheer them up, lift them up, and build them up. And you think about prophets, and sometimes you think the exact opposite. Like, aren't these the naysayers? You know, aren't prophets like the doom and gloom group? Don't they always come with, you know, warnings and foreshadowings and ominous messages? Uh, you know, you read in the book of Acts, and here's Agabus saying, hey, you guys, uh, there's a great famine coming, and we're all going to suffer in the process. You know, good news. <laughs> And the thing of it is, in that situation, they took it to heart and they prepared themselves for it emotionally, physically, spiritually. And when it began, began to come on them and the realization of, hey, this is what was predicted by the Lord, they did the wise thing and left town. This is going to be severe here and it's already here's the first. We need to go, right? Uh, how about an easier one to understand? Jesus Christ warns the body of believers that the temple is going to be destroyed and that there's going to be a great slaughter in the land of Israel and catastrophic things are going to happen. And then, you know, 70, 65 AD, 35 years after Jesus' life and ministry, Israel is rebelling against Rome, and Rome is coming in with all of its military force and just going to throttle the nation of Israel. And the Christians realize, hey, this is what Jesus warned us about. <clears throat> and so they looked back through what was recorded. What did he say? And they found that Jesus told them to flee, to run away. And so historically we know with an absolute certainty that 100% of the Christians fled Jerusalem, and none of them perished during that invasion. The Jews experienced a massive slaughter. Christians did not. They fled across the Jordan, and they waited there. And then when they saw the great slaughter, and then they moved on and were dispersed throughout the Mediterranean region. And that spread the gospel everywhere that they went. When God gives a warning, fear isn't part of the process, right? The circumstances that he relays may be fearful in appearance, but the reassurance and the preparation that he provides doesn't leave us in a state of fear. Keep that in mind, right? When you're tuning into these self-proclaimed prophets and their message is always some fearful and trepidation that you need to 
you might want to just shut them off at that point. Let the Lord bring you comfort in this process. So you're going to experience this. You know, you're going to see the land, but you're not going to go there. You're going to be gathered as Aaron was, you know, gathered for in the wilderness of Zin. And now the Lord gives explanation, verse 14, as to why. During the strife of the congregation, when the congregation was whining and complaining and accusing Moses and God of bringing them out into the wilderness to kill them with thirst and starvation, you rebelled, Moses, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. We remember that Moses the first time was told to take his staff and to strike the rock. And when he did... The rock burst open and water flowed out. And and, and I'll explain again. It was a river that came out of that rock. There are millions of people here and all of their livestock. This isn't like a crack that, you know, jettisons out this little stream and everybody gets in line and fills up their bucket and heads back to the tent. This becomes a river that flows out so that they can all experience the hydration that they need. In the process, the second time they're in those dire circumstances, the Lord tells Moses, this time I want you to go and speak to the rock. And the symbolism that is there is Jesus Christ as our rock struck the first time at the crucifixion, provides living water for our very souls to sustain us. Anytime we are in need after that, we need only speak to the rock. And to ask of him. And he will provide for us. And Moses was supposed to relay that symbolism. And in his anger with the nation of Israel and their rebellion and their expressions of frustration and accusation against himself and the Lord, he strikes the rock on that occasion also. And the Lord says that's a profound misrepresentation of my character. And as a result, you're not going to enter into the promised land. I'll take the opportunity to again clarify that the promised land and crossing the Jordan River is not a symbol of death. It is a symbol of entering into the victorious Christian life filled with the Holy Spirit. The nation of Israel crosses the Jordan River and in the strength of the Holy Spirit they conquer the occupying nations of Canaan, and they take possession of their cities and their lands, and it becomes their victorious state of living. The Lord is offering us that. But as long as we follow the failed example of Moses in not finding an obedient victory in our lives, then we're going to be left in the wilderness of our sin Dying to the flesh. If we will abandon our natural character and our natural sinfulness and follow the Lord, then victory is what the Lord has in preparation for us. Unfortunately, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah. And we often look at that explanation because the word Meribah means strife or conflict, and we often look at the nation of Israel and their strife and their conflict and their accusation 
against the Lord and Moses, and we think, yeah, that's why it was called Meribah. It might have been Moses who was the one who was in conflict and strife and rebellion against the Lord. He didn't accurately represent the Lord. The Lord right here just said, you rebelled against me. It may have been that the Lord named this location Meribah because of Moses' conduct in the situation. Consider that as far as our own conduct. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Verse 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation. <coughs> Moses' immediate concern is not his own life. He's not pleading for, Oh, Lord, don't let me die. <laughs> Oh, Lord, please let me in, enter into the promised land. He settles his heart on, that's the judgment of the Lord. But then his immediate concern is the nation of Israel and who's going to guide them. He's immediately concerned about the flock of God. That's the heart of a shepherd right there. Jesus reflects that, his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 as he knows he's about to die and he's concerned about the apostles and the people that follow them and what's going to happen in that the, the great example of the shepherd and we'll talk about that a little more here he asks the lord <coughs> who may go out before them you know i need you to set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them who may lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now, to a large part, when Moses makes this statement about, I need you to reassure me that you're going to set someone over the congregation that will guide them when they go out and when they come in, that was to war. When they talk about the kings going out and coming in, when they hear talk about Joshua, going out and coming in it's to war it isn't you know it does have a a very minor sense of just the overall attitude of guidance but it is in the conflicts we need a shepherd to continue to guide these people now with that up until this point their existence hasn't been a people of warfare and here moses understands what they're about to enter into is being a nation of war. They were a nation of shepherds, right? They were a nation of slaves. And they're transitioning into being a tremendous warrior nation, right? Those of us that know the account, their first occasions were merely being obedient to the Lord, and God was the one who brought the victories about. But as time passes, they're much more engaged in the process. And we're going to see that just in a few chapters, they immediately go into war even before they enter the land. So from the onset of Joshua's leadership, it's a leadership of military conquest. So this idea of shepherds, the Greek term uh, for elder, overseer, it is the word we today use as shepherd is pastor. That's, that's where we get the term pastor from. It means to shepherd. You can hear within it the idea of 
pasture. And it, and it means to feed or give food to. So when you move forward into the New Testament, a few references there. We're familiar with John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Uh, the the self-sacrificing attitude. You can see it in Moses. He's about to die, and he understands these people need a shepherd. He he, you know, I'm going to be done. There needs to be someone else that will fill my role. Of course, that moves not just because there are, you know, people within Christianity that they're opposed to organized church and congregational you know, meetings and assemblies like we're doing right now. They don't think that there should be a pastor leading churches. They, they promote the idea that, oh, you know, anyone who's mature can be an elder and we should all just have home churches. And look, I'm not opposed to home churches. I'm not opposed to that type of community and even leadership. But it's false, and I do mean false, to teach the concept that the Lord himself didn't want pastors. Keep in mind John chapter 21 verse 17 as Jesus is restoring Peter, right? Peter has fallen, especially in his own heart and mind, from ministry when he denied Jesus at the crucifixion those three times. The last time he pronounced a curse upon himself, essentially saying something of the nature of, may God strike me dead if I know the man. He was adamant in his opposition to Jesus. And at the end of John chapter 21, Jesus restores Peter back to the ministry by asking him three times, do you love me? And then telling him, feed my sheep in three different ways. The verse, John 21 verse 17, he said, Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. That, that term, pastor, right? The feeding of the sheep is what is required. We feed the word of God. Pastors do two things. Moses as a shepherd, Joshua as a shepherd, every pastor that the Lord has called to the pulpit, they do two things prominently. They feed the sheep and they lead the sheep. That's our job. Give spiritual direction, guidance, insight, opportunities to leading the sheep into ministry, areas of opportunity and service. Total rabbit trail mindset here. Just pause my message. Kaylee Dean, many of you know, in Brazil is about to give birth and uh, her parents are trying to get down uh, to see her. So any of us that want to uh, help her parents uh, get down there, she's Calvary Chapel girl, attended uh, Calvary Chapel High School and uh, she's dedicated her life to Brazil and she lives down there. She's married and uh, about to give birth, her parents are trying to go see her. If you want to help them, contact Calvary Chapel Bangor. And, uh, I mean, it's a matter of days at this point, I think, before Kaylee's going to give birth. So, you know, shepherding and feeding uh, the flock, giving direction to a life like Kaylee Dean to help her get in the ministry. This is what 
pastors do. Lastly, along those lines, 1 Peter chapter 5, right? So Peter's been told, feed my sheep. And then verse 1, you might want to turn there. There's a few verses I want to look at. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Peter says, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I teach, I encourage. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So this is his exhortation, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. So, so I mean, you're hearing uh, Jesus' command and Peter's encouragement to do these very things as pastors and overseers. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not because you're forced to, not because somebody made you do it, because you have a willing heart to do it. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. It shouldn't uh, be considered a vocation. You know, if, if you're receiving pay, the scripture you know, talks about that and how uh, that's encouraged, but at the same time, it sh the motivation shouldn't be uh, materialism, is what he's saying. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. You know, this is part of the reason that I, uh, you know, am repulsed by the idea of pastors creating this superiority mentality, you know, that they somehow are above uh, the, the flock that they themselves. You know, serve nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Uh, that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive your crown of glory that does not fade away. That chief shepherd, of course, is Jesus Christ, and we're called to be under shepherds in service to him. So, the concept, the, the great overview of what Moses is looking for, you know, sort of explained from a New Testament viewpoint. Back in Numbers 27, picking up at verse 18, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit. Before I move on, Moses started this conversation in prayer regarding uh, who would take over after him by saying, you're the Lord over all the spirits of men. And that spirit was a lowercase spirit. Okay, lowercase s, referring to our spirit. What by nature we are born with, body, soul, and spirit. You're the Lord over all those. But here, capital S, right? The Holy Spirit upon Moses, upon Joshua in this case, <coughs> you know, you know, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hands on him. New Testament view we've talked about even recently of in First Timothy, uh, not laying your hands on anyone suddenly. Paul admonishes Timothy, you don't want to put anybody in leadership too quickly. You want to watch them work. You want to watch them grow. You want to watch them mature in their service uh, to the Lord, lest you share in their sin. If they fail in that circumstance, because you've laid your hands on them and given your approval to them, 
then you're going to also share in their success or in their failure. Uh, there, there's a thing I do not like. Uh, it happens in a lot of denominations, but it happens in Calvary Chapel a lot because a lot of Calvary Chapel pastors don't go through seminary. They just have profound conversions and then thereby relationships with the Lord and they be, often become very serious students of the scripture and very serious ministers of the gospel while their churches get big. And then along comes a university that says, uh, we noticed that you don't have a degree. So how about we give you, you know, an honorary doctorate? And you think, oh, that'd be wonderful. You know, Dr. Will, hey, you know, I, I kind of like that idea, you know, you just the doctorate of divinity next to your name or whatever. Well, then what happens is, right, that you get the large church and everybody that goes there and then they realize, oh, he went to this or that college or that stuff when he never even went there. That college is gaining the credit for what the Holy Spirit has done. Okay, I, I'm, not, I'm not offended by these universities or anyone attending seminary. In fact, I encourage it. If you get the opportunity to take courses and go to school and earn a degree, man, I, I mean, I'm 100% on board with that idea. Please do that. Okay, but what the Holy Spirit has done, the Holy Spirit needs to have credit for. Amen? Okay, and, and, and you know, this whole idea, I'll, I, I will not, I often do mention the name, but I will not mention the man's name who we've all admired. He passed away recently, and now there's a scandal emerging uh, from his personal life. Okay, and it's kind of heartbreaking to witness. And part of that scandal is the realization that everywhere he went, he was introduced as Dr. So and so and Dr. So-and-so, and this week Dr. So-and-so is going to be over there and here and speaking, and then we discover that his doctorate was honorary. He never went to school. He was never even affiliated with the school that he had his title from. The school that he went to, he didn't even enroll. Some of you know what it means to simply survey a course. You don't, you don't actually pay the money and get the credit. You just... Every class that you want to, you pay a small fee. If it was $2,000 to take the course, you pay $75, and that allows you to sit in the class and listen to the professor. And he did that on a number of occasions, but that university wasn't even associated with the one who then gave him the doctorate. You know, listen, that all might sound very confusing to you because I'm not mentioning any specific names, but let me, let me put it in a way I think you will appreciate Every one of us that listened to this man preach for all the decades that he did, we were blown away by his messages. And to this day, nothing will take away from the depth of that man's ministry. Except the falsehood right now is diminishing the value in a lot of people's hearts and minds. Because we honor men more than we do God. If you go back and you listen to that man's sermons, you'll be floored by what's being taught. You'll be convicted by the depth that the Holy Spirit is working in his life. And if you know the scandal and you're thinking, oh, I've already written him off. 
Really? Have you written off the entire book of Psalms? Because I don't know if you've put that together, but that was an adulterous murderer who wrote that book. David, right, stole Bathsheba from Uriah the Hittite and then had Uriah the Hittite murdered. How betraying it is to think that David wrote out Uriah's death warrant, sealed it, and gave it to Uriah and said, deliver that to your executioner. Without him even understanding it, right? Take this back to your general. The general gets it from Uriah's hand, opens it up, and what does it say? Make the battle intense tomorrow. Push Uriah right up against the city wall and then withdraw everybody from behind him. Leave him alone there at the wall to die. When that general cracked that open and read that seal and Uriah is standing right there, he must have been thinking, buddy, you messed up somehow. The king hates your guts. And what it was, was 100% the sinfulness of David's heart. Right? The grace of God. The grace of God. The spirit of God that is on Joshua right here. That is on the minister that so many people are discrediting right now. That was upon David. That's upon you. The grace of God that is upon you. That's the only way we're saved. That's the only way any of us are accepted by God. Not our works. Not all the things we have done or haven't done. But upon his mercies. Here, the Spirit of God is upon Joshua. Lay your hand on him. Verse 19. Set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation. And inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. <clears throat> the visual display of I am putting this man up in front of the congregation so that everyone can see I have laid my authority upon him tells the congregation that Moses and thereby the Lord approves of Joshua. For whatever other things... There might have been in Joshua's life that he was doing or had done. When he gets stood up in front of the congregation in that way, it's, it tells the congregation of God's authority upon his life. You see a similar thing here, right? When a man stands right here and teaches from the word of God to the congregation, Whatever degree of authority that I have, I am lending that authority from the Lord to that individual. That they are standing here and declaring the word of God to the congregation. So, set him before the priest, before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, and all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eliezer. The priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim at the word that they shall go out and at his word they shall come in. There it is again, that sense of military conduct. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. I just want to touch on the Urim and the Thummim again. Only the Urim is mentioned here. Uh, 
<clears throat> we don't know what the Urim and Thummim were. Uh, we are told in the description of their manufacturing that when the priestly garments were to be made and the breastplate was to be made that's put on the priest, that the Urim and Thummim were supposed to be made and put into a pouch on the priest's chest. Okay, So whatever the Urim and the Thummim were, they had to be relatively small in order to fit into a pouch on the priest's chest. And then we are told that this is how the nation of Israel would inquire of the Lord through the Urim and the Thummim. Now from there, all kinds of things have been taught and created. Okay. Uh, Joseph Smith uh, went as far as to say uh, when he created the religion of Mormonism that uh, Moroni the angel had given him uh, golden tablets that contained the Book of Mormon and they were written in reformed ancient uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics which isn't a real thing but that's, that's what he named them and um, he told people that when he um, translated them from the original tablets to write them down on paper, which he says became the Book of Mormon, that, that God gave him, or the angel Moroni gave him, special glasses that he would put on and he would be able to read the original writing. And he referred to those glasses as the Urim and the Thummim. Okay? That's totally false. It's not what the Old Testament records. It's not what the scripture is talking about here. I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of that. I'm just simply saying that that invention of Joseph Smith's imagination is not what the scripture is describing. Okay, And it's important to the context here. They would inquire of the Lord through the Urim and Thummim, and they would, they would realize the Lord's will. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> we have a few occasions where it's described where they would inquire of the Lord through the Urim and the Thummim. And they would receive an answer from the Lord through them. And the confirmation was that what the Lord told them to do was successful. If they were going to battle and they would inquire of the Lord, are we supposed to go to battle? They would inquire of the Urim and Thummim and the answer would come and they would obey that and they would be victorious. If the Lord said no, then it worked out in their favor. The thought is, and this is totally speculation, that the Urim and Thummim were two stones, two gems of identical cut. That one was white and the other was black. And the idea of the white stone being yes or a positive response and the black stone being no or a negative response. So think of it this way. Lord, should we go to war? And the priest reaches in and pulls out and here's a white stone then the answer is yes, go to war. And they put it back in and shuffle them around and say, Lord, uh, should we go today? And they reach in and pull it out and there's a black stone. Okay, not today. And they would inquire of the Lord in, we know this, we don't know if it was stones, but we know this. They would inquire of the Lord in such a way that the answer could be yes or no. And then the Urim and Thummim seemed to uh, support that. Now, now, don't go home and get a bag and, put a black rock and a white, you know what I'm saying? I'm serious because 
I, I talked about this recently in our morning sermons. They do this thing of drawing straws this way because in their mind they had, the Jews had this mindset that God was in charge of making the lot fall to the person that it was supposed to. And so all the way up to the book of Acts, even the apostles continue to use this method. But once the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, they no longer inquire of the Lord that way. They seek the Lord's voice in their heart and in their mind, and the Lord speaks to them clearly as a people. You get to the book of Acts chapter 15, and there's a great debate in the church about are they going to require that the Gentiles be circumcised? Do the Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to become Christian? And there's a huge conflict in Christianity over this because now big numbers of Gentiles are coming into the church and people are saying Paul isn't an apostle and there's all kinds of arguments and fights and difficulty, division and fellowships. So Acts 15, they have Jerusalem Council and they determine is this what we're going to require? What are we supposed to do? And it says there in Acts chapter 15 that the Holy Spirit said, no, not going to require Gentiles to become Jews in order to become Christians. Only two things would be required, right? And you know what they are. You've been in this class long enough that they would stay, that the Gentiles would stay away from idolatry and sexual immorality. Those were the two requirements of non-Jewish Christian believers. None of the law would be required of them. And then they even write a letter and say, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. They didn't say, we inquired of the Urim and the Thummim. We, we drew lots until we had determined what the will of the Lord was. We rolled the dice until we figured out what God was saying to us. They didn't do any of that. I said to you moments ago, James told us if we need wisdom, inquire of God. Here, we're hearing this Old Testament sense of things, that the Lord uh, will, and, you know, they, that he will inquire of the Lord by the Urim, at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and he laid hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses inquiring of the Lord for the approval you can inquire of the Lord and you can have understanding now if you're sitting there thinking and I'll try to wrap it up with this concept if you're sitting there thinking, I've inquired of the Lord and I've confused myself. I don't know when I'm hearing from the Lord and when I'm not. Okay, I'll give you some guidance again as your pastor. Ready? You want to know the will of the Lord, you have to be in the Word of God. You cannot be a person who has questions and not be a person who is not presently, in, and I mean presently, in the Word of God. You need to be listening to the voice of God if you're going to hear from God. You need to open His Word up and let it speak to you all the time. You need to be in a continuous communication with your Heavenly Father. That's the first thing. Okay, you got to have the Holy Spirit. Right. So if you're not born again, then even the Word of God is going to be confusing to you. So you've got to surrender your life to Christ first. Well, how do I do that? Very simple, right? 
You want to be a Christian? You ask the Lord to make you one. You know, we don't have altar calls here very often, but I often put this message out. If you want to know Jesus as your personal Savior, all you have to do is ask Him. In your heart, you tell Him, I know I'm a sinner in need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins. By your Son's blood, forgive me of my sins. Give me your Holy Spirit and cause me to be born again, that I would be a child of God. Was that simple? Want me to explain that again? You want to be a child of God, recognize you're a sinner, and ask for forgiveness under the blood of Jesus Christ. Ask Him to give you His Holy Spirit and cause you to be born again, that you would be a child of God. And you are. Simple as that. Well, I prayed that one time, and I didn't really feel anything. So what? So what? You know, some people have tremendous emotional experiences when they get married. Other people were up all night decorating, and they're exhausted, and they stand, and they make their vows, and they go home and go to bed for 10 hours. You know what I'm saying? Exhausted. There's all kinds of various experiences, okay? Just because, oh, I prayed the prayer and I didn't have any big experience. That's okay. It's really okay. Whatever your experience is. See, because you don't fulfill your salvation. Jesus Christ does. He is your Savior in the process. You want to hear the voice of the Lord? Got to be born again. Got to be in the Word. You got to be in fellowship, Right? Because we convince ourselves of things, don't we? And then you talk to somebody else and they go, not at all. Right? You, you, you're convinced, you know, whatever it is that it might be. It's not until somebody comes and corrects you, right? I said I was going to try to wrap this up. I didn't say it was going to be short, <clears throat> you know. We started this fellowship and we had you know, a couple people doing music and I really wanted, you know, more sound and so kept trying to get drummers to go hey come down and you know be our drummer be our drummer be our drummer and i did this for like a year and a half and one of those brothers finally said to me why don't you be the drummer so i went out and bought this drum kit and i practiced we were living in the house next door i practiced for three months and man i was getting good till i sat down with other musicians and realized i didn't know a thing <laughs> I ground worship to a stop like several times, man, because I had no idea what I was doing. You, you think you're doing good until somebody else comes along. you got to be in fellowship. got to have the Holy Spirit. got to be in the Word. you got to be in fellowship. The other people would have the opportunity to lend their wisdom and their counsel to you. And you got to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ. you got to sing and say praises and testify you need to share your faith with others if you'll live that way you'll be able to hear the voice of god clearly clearly listen if you're just a person who labeled yourself as a christian at some point you know and you bought yourself a bible and every now and then when the crisis comes along you're like oh god speak to me now and you struggle and wrestle to know you're not going to hear his voice. You're not going to understand his voice. You're not going to know, is that his voice? If you are a person that is 
in fellowship with his spirit, in fellowship with his word, in fellowship with his children, in tune with his will, you'll hear the voice of God very clearly all the time. You can become a person. So, so hear me in this. The conclusion is you can become a person who hears very clearly from the Lord. Let your life be open to that. Amen? Amen. Well, my notes go all the way to chapter 31, so we're going to be here the rest of the day. No. We'll end right there. So will you stand with me, and we'll pick up at chapter 28 next week. You were right, Casey. Not a chance. <clears throat> Father, I thank you very much that we're able to be together, that you love us. How gracious that you love us. Lord, continue to minister to us. Help us to follow you with our lives. Use us as your children. Lord, bless this afternoon as we celebrate our little brother's birthday. Lord, I pray that this would be an especially fun experience for us all. Thank you for this opportunity. Again, I know I'm just repeating myself, but Lord, please use us as your ministers. Help us to share our faith with people all around us, that we would bring people into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless.